Hello, friends. It's January 6th, and this is the One Year Bible Tour Guide podcast, where each day we read today's portion from the One Year Bible and point out highlights that you won't want to miss. Each day, the One Year Bible features consecutive readings from both the Old and New Testaments. It also has daily readings from the Bible's Song and Prayer Book, the Book of Psalms, and the Bible's Treasure Chest of Wisdom, the Book of Proverbs, containing general truisms that help us with daily decision-making and serve us with a godly frame of reference as we interact with others. My name is David McAdam, pastor and Bible teacher at New Life Community Church in Concord, Massachusetts, and we are making our way through the book of Genesis. So let's pick up where we left off yesterday, starting with Genesis chapter 13, beginning with verse 5. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Chapter 14 In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Alasar, Shedor Leomur, king of Alam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, and all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Shedor-Leomer, but in the thirtieth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Shedor-Leomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth-Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazazontamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, 
the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and Anar. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, both in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Habah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. Chapter 15 After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. And he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. 
and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go forth to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So let us take a moment to reflect upon today's reading. Abraham's trust in God is continually being tested. So is ours. Abraham compromises his obedience, and so do we. He does not leave his family as God told him to. He brings his father and nephew. According to Scripture, Abram is called while he is living in Ur of the Chaldees, a city devoted to Nanar, the moon god. Abraham and his father were serving other gods. Abraham did not know God at the time, but God sovereignly chose to make himself known and called him to leave his idols and his household. Abraham takes his wife Sarai, his father Terah, and Lot his nephew, from Ur to Haran, another city devoted to serving lunar deities. In Acts chapter 7 verse 2, we know that the Lord called Abram before he came to Haran. Acts 7.2 reads, And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Abraham stays in Haran until his father dies. Then Abram follows the Lord according to the promise originally given to him. He and Sarai bring Abraham's nephew Lot with him. Warren Wearsby comments, quote, Whatever you bring with you from the old life into the new is likely to create problems. Terah, Abraham's father, kept Abram from fully obeying the Lord, and Lot created serious problems for Abram until they finally had to agree to part. Abraham and Sarah brought a sinful agreement with them from Ur, in Genesis 20, verse 13, and it got them into trouble twice, in Genesis 12, verses 10 to 20 and chapter 20 verses 1 to 18. Disobedience gets us into trouble, but if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, God is faithful to his covenant. That is the message of Abraham. God's grace is available to those who trust him, and by grace through faith his purposes are advanced in us and through us. End of quote. Abraham and Sarai were not perfect, but their lives illustrate the walk of faith. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. We read that in Genesis 15, 6, and in Romans 4, verses 1 to 5, Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 14. He lived by faith, and his obedience provided the evidence of his faith. In Genesis chapter 13, 
Abram and his nephew Lot have both prospered. Abraham was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. Lot also had flocks, herds, and tents. It was challenging for them to graze their animals and keep track of all of their stuff. Their herdsmen disputed over each other's management of their many possessions. Abram proposed as a solution that he and Lot split up and move into different territories. He offered Lot first choice of the ample land available to settle in. Lot made his choice based strictly upon what he could reason through his senses, what he saw. He lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan. It sounds similar to the woman in Eden who saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, which led to the rationalization of her disobedience. Lot is a type of one who lives by sense knowledge, choosing to walk by sight. Abraham is an example that is a type representing the believer. He's a model believer, the father of our faith. He walks by faith and not by sight. Lot pitches his tent towards Sodom, a city inhabited by men who were exceedingly wicked and sinners against the Lord. While Lot pitches his tent to behold the beauty of Sodom, the Lord calls Abraham to lift up his eyes and view his God-given inheritance, his promised provision, the land of Canaan. How wonderful to rest in the Lord's provision for us. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. This is a reminder that the Lord's promise to Abraham's seed, Israel, is not yet fulfilled. This land will be fully settled as the Lord's habitation in the book of Revelation. The Lord also promises to multiply Abraham's descendants as the dust of the earth. What is Abraham's response? He builds an altar of thanksgiving. Genesis chapter 14 describes a war of kings, four kings against five. Four kings allied to the king of Elam attacked the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, who had recently rebelled against Elam's king. Sodom and Gomorrah are attacked, and Lot, Abraham's nephew, is taken captive. Abraham is not passive. He does not abandon Lot. He puts his own life at risk and goes to the great trouble to rescue his nephew. He brings 318 men with him and successfully defeats his nephew's captors, the four kings, and rescues Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abraham knows it is the Lord who has given him success. Bera, the king of Sodom, is very grateful to Abraham for rescuing his people and offers Abraham all the spoils in return for restoring his land and subjects. But another king shows up, a mystery man who is like no other man in the Bible except Jesus Christ. The Bible lists a separate lineage of kings, such as the line of David, and a separate lineage of priests, the descendants of Levi. But here is a man who is both king and priest. There is no record of his beginning of days or his end of days. He is a type of Christ, whose priesthood is everlasting. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. He is also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. And he offers Abraham bread and wine, symbols of redemption that will be used by the greater Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, who offers his body, symbolized by the bread, in Matthew 26:26 and Mark 14:22, and his shed blood, symbolized by the wine, so that his kingdom of righteousness and peace can be established in the hearts of believers. In Isaiah 32:17 and Romans 14:17. The promise of the Messiah is that he would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110, verse 4. 
Abraham rejects the offer of the king of Sodom, lest it be said that the kings of this world made him rich. Abraham gives glory and thanks to God instead. He accepts what Melchizedek offers, a blessing from the Most High God, accompanied with the visible elements that foreshadow the body and blood of the perfect sacrifice, bread and wine. This is a reminder that our blessings from God are not given due to our own merits, but the merits of the one who would offer his body and shed his blood on the cross, a perfect offering, atoning for our sins, in Leviticus 17.11. How blessed Abraham was to meet someone who knew the same God who had revealed himself to him earlier. How he must have rejoiced to have fellowship with another believer. Breaking bread with Melchizedek was a symbol of their fellowship with the one true God. This revelation of God's grace inspires Abraham to worship. He expresses this worship by offering a tenth that is a tithe of all. Offering a tenth, or a tithe, of the material blessings to those bringing the knowledge of God's grace to us is often seen in the Bible as an act of worship, if it comes from the heart. Tithing was not a commandment or even a regular practice in Abraham's life. It was the free expression of his worship of the one true God. Jesus affirmed this practice, though it is not legislated in the New Testament, in Matthew 23.23 and Luke 11.42. And now we're reading from the New Testament as we continue with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 27. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And he who makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? 
Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Reflecting on that reading from the Sermon on the Mount, it closes with a tall order. Being perfect, what does it tell us? That life in the kingdom is perfect. We see this perfect life in the rule of God established in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus continues to contrast the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees of apostate Israel when he says, You have heard that it was said, with his exposition of the true intent of the written law. But I say unto you, he explains what true righteousness looks like. He not only explains the law, he exhibits it. Jesus represents the holiness of God's law with skin on. The law is not given to show us how righteous we are, but how righteous we are not. In Romans 3.19-20, the law is a reflection of God's righteousness, but it gives us no power to fulfill its demands. Instead, it convicts us of sin, reminding us that we are guilty lawbreakers in need of salvation. The law is like a tutor who teaches us of our need for Christ and brings us to him. In Galatians 3.24, we read, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. The only place on earth where the law is fulfilled is in Christ Jesus. That is why we must trust Him for our salvation. He satisfies the law's demand for our death, paying our sins wages on the cross in Romans 6.23. He satisfies the law's ongoing demands for righteousness today by virtue of His representing us in heaven and living within us on earth by the Holy Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. In Romans 8, 2, Jesus turns the law of God into a promise. Jesus' teachings remind us that we cannot afford to be complacent about sin. It is because of sin that mankind is destined for hell, a place that was originally prepared for Satan and his angels in Matthew 25:41. Hell is a place of real torment and the inevitable consequence of our sin. Unless we repent and trust the person and work of Jesus Christ to satisfy God's justice on our behalf, it is where we are bound to spend eternity. Jesus addresses the moral laxity that exists even among the outwardly pious, the lust in the heart, the legitimatizing of deception, betrayal, and adultery through easy divorce and insincere promise-making in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 37. He also exposes how far short our concepts of love fall from the true love of God. The love of God does not just extend to those who reciprocate our loving feelings or initiatives, but to our enemies. The love of God does not extend only to those who put reasonable demands upon us, but also to those whose demands are unreasonable. Jesus points to and exhibits the truth about the love of God. God's love sacrifices, forgives, and keeps no record of wrongs. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4-7, to and in Ephesians 5:25, While we were failing to reciprocate his love, made unreasonable demands, while we were still sinners and enemies, God demonstrated his own love for us. How? Christ died for us, in Romans 5:8. Jesus reminds us that we were originally created to reflect the image of our perfect creator. He says, therefore, you are to be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. We were created to be his image bearers. The law as a revelation of God's righteous perfection underscores that truth. But Jesus is the living Torah, a living revelation of God's righteous perfection. He could say, 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. In John 14, 9. Jesus has come to save us from sin. Sin impedes the image of God from being expressed through us. Jesus is the perfect image of God. He is the Lord our righteousness in Jeremiah 23, 6 and 33, 16. Through Jesus, his dying for us and his living in us by the Spirit, God is restoring to us our true purpose, which is to reflect the perfect moral nature of our Father in heaven. He is going to make Matthew 5:48 a reality in the lives of believers. Isn't that encouraging? That when we see him, we shall be like him. And now a reading from the book of Psalms, Psalm 6, O Lord, deliver my life, to the choir master with stringed instruments, according to Shemenineth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Reflecting on Psalm 6, this psalm reminds us that our souls are not exempt from mental, emotional, and spiritual suffering. But it also reminds us that God hears our prayers. He hears our heart cries for deliverance. He bolsters our hope in the midst of suffering with a reminder that he will ultimately defeat all the enemies of our souls. In Psalm 6, verse 10, All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. In Revelation 17, 14, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. And in Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 we read, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. And we close with a reading from the book of Proverbs chapter 1 verses 29 to 33. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way, and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure, and will be at ease, without dread of disaster. So the writer of Proverbs is giving us a warning, as he's described the blessings of a person who is trusting God and obeying God, the blessings of a faithful life, he now is describing the non-blessings of the unrepentant life. So let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, fill us today with your Holy Spirit that we may have eyes to hear and a heart to obey. You are the express image of God, the living Torah, the Holy Word of God. 
Keep us from foolishness, legalism, and all the systems of self-redemption. May we walk by faith, resting in the sufficiency of who you are and all that you have done and continue to do on our behalf. Help us to trust you with all of our hearts and not to lean on our own understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us on the One Year Bible Reading Tour. We pray that it will be an encouragement to you. May we all do our part in combating biblical illiteracy in our culture. And we pray that the light of God's Word will shine into the hearts of men and women, boys and girls around the world. You can help us spread the Word by not forgetting to subscribe to the One Year Bible Tour Guide podcast wherever you get your podcasts and to like it. This way, when people are looking to get encouragement to press on in their Bible reading, they're more likely to find us and to get the benefit of a tour guide and some helpful commentary that will motivate them to press on in the journey. We want you to feel welcome to contact us with your comments, questions, prayer requests, and you can do so by sending an email to podcast at newlife.org. And we want to remind you that many benefit from getting a daily email with a written copy of the commentary of each day's Bible readings with illustrations, maps, and charts. And you can subscribe at our website, newlife.org. So until next time, we hope you can join us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Shalom. Shalom.